Ramble. Ramble. I don't really like doing chores around the house, I'm going to be honest with you, and I especially used to hate doing laundry. It was just one of my more tedious tasks. It takes so much time, and I often feel tempted to not even bother sorting out my clothes. But I've been trying to motivate myself to get a lot more organized, and I finally found a way to make doing my chores so much more interesting, so much more engaging. And that's by listening to audiobooks on Audible. You guys know me, there is nothing like playing a good psychological thriller. So obviously, that's what I've been listening to. I'm currently listening to The Housemaid by Frida McFadden. The main character, Millie, is out on parole and she's desperate for a job. She doesn't have any money. She's living out of her car and she gets this opportunity to be this rich family's housemaid. Millie agrees, even though there's just something really strange about the Winchesters, especially the wife, Nina. She just seems to love finding ways to make Millie's life very difficult. The family is hiding something and Millie is hiding something and there's just so much tension between Millie and the husband. It's one of those stories that you can't stop listening to and I can't wait to finish it and start the next audiobook in this series. But if Thriller is not your thing, don't worry. Audible lets you pick from thousands of titles to find the perfect soundtrack to your day. You can find audiobooks from any genre, fiction, nonfiction, wellness, self-help. But they also have podcasts like this one, guided wellness programs, comedy, and originals. Living life without using Audible is like eating food with no seasoning. Sure, you still get your nutrients in, but it's missing that extra flavor, you know? So if you want to spice up your day, I highly recommend Audible. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try audible now free for 30 days visit audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 that's audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 to try audible free for 30 days bada bing bada boo welcome to this week's main episode of rotten mango i'm your host stephanie sue and let's just jump right into it sandra was a therapist she was about to sit down with randy Kraft. i mean this is a patient of hers that's been having a lot of issues recently he's been having relationship issues he's been showing signs of severe jealousy a little bit of ocd maybe he is being triggered that's what sandra thought there were a lot of gay men in the area that were going missing and when their bodies were found They would have their private parts cut off. In some cases, their penises were cut off and placed into their own rectums. The police believed, well, the killer is obviously sadistic. He wanted to torture the victims. He would even burn off or slice off the victim's eyelids when they were alive so that they couldn't look away to what was happening to their bodies. The killings were gruesome. The police believed that there were maybe two separate serial killers in the Los Angeles, Orange County area that were targeting gay men specifically. Maybe, just maybe, Sandra thought, Randy was worried about his own safety, the safety of his partners, of his friends, because they were all gay men. But those were the least of his worries. Sandra just did not know how deep Randy's problems truly were until one day he was pulled over for drunk driving, driving under the influence with open bottles in his car. The highway patrol officers were annoyed. This was their second drunk driver of the night. Are you kidding me? They arrested Randy. And would you look at this? His friends passed out on the passenger seat. I mean, seriously? We had the lights on, the sirens on and everything. How much did you guys have to drink? Hey, bud, open up. Time to go home. Let's go. Get up. No response. Come on. The officer shook the man in the passenger seat, and he slumped over. Dang. And he was dead. So he propped the body up like they're just sitting there? Like an HOV passenger. With a jacket on his lap, with his hands folded on his lap, the police officers thought that he was sleeping. That he was dozing off. He still had color to his face. He was fully clothed. It looked like he was just a regular passenger. But he wasn't. He was dead. He had just been murdered. And when they removed that jacket, they're able to see that his hands were tied up underneath the jacket with his own shoelaces. And his private parts were out of his pants in a very obscene, in a very obscene setting. And this is the story of one of the three freeway killers that terrorized Los Angeles. Yes, did you guys know that there's three freeway killers? Essentially, the highway killers. There's three of them. What do you mean by that? There's three serial killers called the freeway killers. Oh, they all have the same nickname. nickname. And they were all operating around the same time. Ah. On the highways of Los Angeles and Orange County. 
So let's just jump right into it. As always, full source notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com, but there's a really good book on this case, you guessed it, okay? It's called Angel of Darkness by Dennis McDougall, and it's seriously the best deep dive that you're going to find on this case. The author is so good at what he does. He writes a ton of true crime books. All of them are meticulously researched, well-written. He scours through tons of paperwork, court documents. He interviews families of the victims. He was even sued by a serial killer himself to bring us the facts. So I highly recommend picking up a coffee, um, coffee. a coffee and a copy, honestly, because <laughs> it's wild. So let's get into Randy Kraft. He's also known as the freeway killer, but also uh, the scorecard killer because he kept a log of every single victim's life that he hunted. Like, over 60 people with detailed notes and these weird nicknames that he would give these people. I mean, some of them literally just said Portland blood. Like uh, he killed someone and it was a very bloody kill in Portland. That's what he called that victim. It's really disturbing. It's suspected that he had killed potentially over 67 people, which is a lot of people. And the way that he did it, I mean, this guy is obsessed with torture. He wants people to feel the pain. Like I had said in the intro, I mean, this is the type of person that will rip off people's eyelids just so you can't look away from your own body being mutilated. Which, by the way, I mean, this is going to be a graphic episode if you guys haven't guessed. So with that warning, let's jump right in to Randy's childhood. I mean, with most serial killers, there's got to be something, right? There's something that we're looking for. Did something happen? Were his, were his parents abusive? So Randy was born the youngest of four children in Long Beach, California. He had three older sisters, which, I mean, typically that's a really good thing. I feel like when I meet guys who have a ton of older sisters, they're always woke. They're always really aware of women's struggles. I mean, they're very good, right? But maybe not so much with Randy. His sisters were a little bit odd. He was born to his dad, Harold. His mom's name was Opal, and they weren't doing well financially. I'll just put it out there. Harold also was not a good dad. He wasn't abusive per se, but he just, he was never around. He didn't even like getting along with his own wife. If Randy's friends were over, which by the way, this is like back in the day when appearances were everything. Like every parent looked like the picture perfect front of a magazine cover, but his parents, Randy's parents, couldn't even get along for 30 minutes while Randy's friends were over. They were just nonstop fighting. They weren't violent. They weren't smacking each other around, but it just was not a happy place to be. So Randy's mom is always busy, his dad's never around, and he's practically raised by his three older sisters, which it was rough for them. <laughs> Randy was a wild child. At just one years old, this guy decides he's going to fall off the couch and shatter his collarbone. One year later, Randy falls down some large concrete stairs and he hits his head. They're like, oh my God, Randy, are you okay? Are you okay? No response. So the family, they start freaking out. They rush him to the ER. He's unconscious. So the doctors start working on him and they say, yeah, he's fine. No complications. We don't see anything. Now, I don't know. Okay, this this keeps getting brought up later because people suspect that something happened during this fall. But the doctors claimed no complications. He's completely fine. You know how resilient kids are. But a lot of people suspect maybe there was some sort of brain trauma. That's the typical bunk. In yeah, the from the swing set. But this time it was concrete steps. Yes, the typical bonk bonk serial killer. It's the serial killer bonk. So Randy was the apple of his mom's and his sister's eyes. He was smart. He's the only son of the family. They really babied him. In school, Randy even took advanced classes. In high school, he's obsessed with politics. Yeah. He, uh, oh, yeah. He labeled himself a Republican. And his ultimate dream was to be a senator one day. He would befriend all of the super conservative kids in high school. They were obsessed with going to meetings for the Christian anti-communist crusade. They always wore their clean, crisp, steamed white shirts and ties, and they had clean-cut haircuts. They read books like The Conscience of a Conservative. So this guy is like really into politics, right? He would later laugh and say, my beliefs were just really a reflection of my parents' political inclinations. I was just a kid. I didn't know what any of this was really about. No, he's popular with the girls at school, though. I mean, there was a gentlemanly vibe about him. He was well-dressed. He was well-liked. He was studious. He really only ever got loud. And, you know, he really only ever acted like a high schooler when he was talking about politics. Otherwise, he just seemed like this mature, above-his-years type of person. One kid said, I absolutely knew nothing about politics. And one time, I was just blabbing my mouth about things that my parents told me about Republicans. 
which wasn't good because my parents aren't Republicans. And Mm -hmm. not knowing what I was saying, Randy being very much the Republican that he was, we got into a heated discussion and he made me cry. That's the only time I ever remember him ever talking to me or even being loud or noisy is when he made me cry because I wasn't a Republican. Teachers remember Randy as being like a nice, polite, smart kid. I mean, he was kind of a right wing nutcase is what they called him. Like he was smart. But dude, you're in high school. Have some fun. Like, I know you got to be into politics. I know we got to be woke. But like you're doing too much. Like you're terrorizing people who don't have the same beliefs as you. You're doing too much. He was never short of ability. So it kind of like Randy's whole vibe is he would walk down the hallway and act like he was better than everybody else. He was that kid. Him and his kids were the cool kids. They were sophisticated. They had witty jokes. The jocks in their school, they rely on shock value for their humor. They're dumb. They would moon teachers. How is that even funny? Moon teacher? Like like take off their pants and show their butts. <laughs> what? <laughs> like how is that even funny? It's, it's dumb. But Randy and his friends, they made liberal jokes, you know? They were cool. So Randy had the shock of his life when the area that he's growing up in Southern California starts expanding exponentially. I mean, when he was young, this was a peaceful place. There was barely any people on his block. Now there's buildings everywhere. The roads are getting bigger to accommodate for the traffic. There was a cocktail lounge that opened up near their family house. And Randy would complain to his friends every single day. I have to go into the backyard and shovel condoms out because people keep just throwing used condoms over the fence. After, you know, doing it near the cocktail lounge. I mean, it was just really frustrating. And I have to do it alone because my sisters, there's a big age gap. They left the house. They already got married. They're starting their own families. It's just me. So Randy starts dating some girls here and there in high school. But he was gay. I mean, he just wasn't interested in them at all. Like, this was back in the day. And heartbreakingly, still to this day, it was terrifying to come out. Like, there's a classmate once said, in those days, nobody would ever let it be known that they were horny, let alone gay. And when somebody did do something, the whole world knew about it. So if somebody got a piece of ass, yeah, that's what they said. Everybody knew the next day. So I can't imagine that someone who was gay in those days would have done anything to let it be known. Mm -hmm. So that's like the environment that he's growing up in. And it's still kind of like that. So the town that this takes place in in Orange County is called Westminster. And uh, it's still a little bit more on the conservative side. But I know when you think like, oh, just outside of L.A., you're thinking, wow, they're going to be pretty like open minded and woke and like, I don't know, believe in all human rights. Right. But it's a very conservative place. So anything that's not as straight as a pencil is considered a mental and moral sickness that needs to be cured. So Randy graduates high school, top 10 of his class of 390 students. And he, uh, yeah, and he enrolls to an all male, super serious college to study economics. Now, this type of college has no partying. There's no fraternities. I was going to say no furniture. (laughs) There's no fraternities. There's no drinking clubs, nothing. It's literally just you and your schoolwork. It's a no fun zone. Sunday was the only time that you were allowed to have women on campus in your room like in your dorm room but you had to keep your door open and randomly like the the what do you call it the ras would come in and check up on you i mean this is this is college feels so out of place it feels stuck in the past there were no gay students there were no women's rights no political protests nothing which a lot of the colleges in this area they were having those things like marches for women's rights and they were just stuck in the past So, of course, even in college, he's not trying to come out. I mean, Randy told nobody that he was gay. Instead, he just focused on his studies. And it wasn't until someone died that he realized, wait a minute, maybe I've been doing this wrong. So hear me out. Right before all of this was taking place, um, back then it was said that a lot of conservatives were on side with going to war with Vietnam. They were like, yeah, let's let's. Fork it up over there. Let's go to war. Meanwhile, like more of the liberal people were like, hey, maybe we shouldn't kill random Vietnamese children and women for no reason at all. Like that seems not. And our troops are dying, too. It was just a big thing. There were a lot of protests and Randy was all for it. He was like, yeah, let's go to war. We need to go to war. America needs to win more. And then a classmate, a college graduate of the same college, like an alumni, had mm-hmm. died in war. So then Randy, I mean, he immediately switched sides. He was like, okay, now that it impacted someone I know, personally, I'm Mm anti-war. And he said it was this moment that he just wanted to break away from these values. He was really asking himself, what am I doing this? Like, why why do I even believe this shit anyway? I don't understand. 
It was just a random classmate. Yeah, that he didn't even know. He was just like,、mm. "Wow, somebody died, and I don't know why I was for the war." He even lost his religion. This is the guy that would pass out his senior photos, and he wrote "God bless you" on the back of all of them. But now he felt like he was atheist. He was agnostic, and on top of that, he was gay. He's starting to experiment with his sexuality, and now his entire conservative belief system is in chaos—absolute chaos. Can you believe it? Like he—he he doesn't even know who he is. So he started bringing these men home, but his parents were completely clueless still. They're like, wow, Randy's brought home another best friend, another roommate from college. He just would always tell them, yeah, it's just a friend. Randy got a part-time job at a cocktail lounge with a gay clientele, and he started gradually coming out to his friends in college. But his college peers didn't necessarily like him, not because he was gay, but there was just something about him. He had this like menacing smile. It's like when someone smiles at you and you know. They don't really mean it. Like it's not a real smile. It feels like they're planning something for you.、It、feels like they're plotting something, like、mm-hmm. a sick, twisted movie. And soon there were some strange things that the students noticed. I mean, this is bizarre. But he would disappear all the time. Sometimes two to three times a week, just at odd hours of the night. He never let anyone know what he was doing. That was his thing. He's so secretive. Another classmate said that he was once curious, like, "Hey, what do you what do you do in your free time? You're always like out. I heard your roommate's always lonely because you leave at night." And Randy looked him dead in the eye and said, "You know, there's a part of me that you'll never know." Oh, okay. I mean, we're just in college, dude. Like, are you dating someone at a different school or something? Like, it's not that serious. So everybody just kind of moved on. But the one thing that his roommates and friends knew was that he always had these super intense headaches. Again, this is why people keep going back to that childhood accident where he had fallen down the concrete steps. Like, did something happen there? So he's got these headaches. He's taking Valium for it. He's always on these prescription drugs. He doesn't necessarily abuse it. He takes them for what they're used for, and he does have those problems. So we'll just leave it at that for now. During college, he moves off campus with a former roommate to Huntington Beach. Now he's not openly gay yet. He's still inviting girls over to his dorm. He would sneak them in at night and cook for them. He would essentially date them. So I'm curious. I mean, maybe he was bi. Maybe he did it to keep up appearances because you know back then it was weird. But it's unclear. But Randy was excited for Huntington Beach, okay? Because after the beachgoers are done with Huntington Beach, the heterosexuals go home, right? They go home into their nice little houses, thinking, "Wow, there's no gay people in this world. We can sleep calmly at night, right?" <laughs> Then the gays would come. The people that were rejected by society would come out, and they would fill the beaches after hours. It was almost like two worlds at once. Like that was what was Huntington Beach was known for. There were a lot of gay sex workers that would come out. I mean, this was the place to be. This was the place to experiment. And so at the pier, Randy meets a man who offered to have sex with him, and he said yes, not knowing that this man was a police officer. So he was arrested for lewd conduct, whatever that means. Okay. And his whole life at that point just takes a turn. He starts identifying as a Democrat. He even starts campaigning for John F. Kennedy. Even receiving a letter from John F. Kennedy, like thanking him、no、for his、way. efforts and saying, "Please, I would look look forward to meeting you in Orange County on the campaign." So he campaigned for JFK, and his grades start slipping so badly, in fact, that he wasn't even able to graduate college with his peers. He had to take summer courses. And afterwards, he joins the Air Force. So he gets sent to basic training in Texas before he gets sent back to California. And he spends most of his time painting test planes, but they call it a protective coding specialist. And he did well. He's moving up in these ranks. He's so paranoid that he's gonna be caught for being gay. So he would write home to his friends like, "I don't know what to do, guys. Like, I'm gonna literally be discharged from the Air Force because I like men. This is ridiculous." Even Randy's parents found out that he was gay, and they were not happy. I mean, these were raging conservatives. His dad was disgusted. He said, "No set of mine could possibly be gay." <laughs> What does that even mean? Because I'm just so straight. That's how it totally works, for sure. Randy's mom was really disappointed. Honestly, I don't know which one's worse. Like, quiet disappointment really shakes me to my core. It's har- it's heartbreaking. But she would tell him, "It's okay, honey. You'll come to your senses eventually." What does that even mean? One of his sisters said, "Oh, my brother. He's just going through it. He's decided to become homosexual." What? 
you know, I think it's the all-male college. I think it would have been different if he went to a different school. It's like, what is going on here? The family claims that they didn't cut off communication with him, but they were just judging him. So, of course, I mean, that's practically the same thing. Randy doesn't feel comfortable around them. He's going to stop talking to them slowly, which is bad because he needs people around him. He's just sulking in all this anger. He's mad at his family. He's mad at the Air Force. He's telling his friends that he's working for dumb people in the Air Force that are beneath him academically, but they might fire him just because he likes men. Imagine how angry that is, honestly. That's infuriating. All of the Air Force is mainly just manual labor. Why did he study so hard? I mean, this is ridiculous. But he stuck it out because it was good for his future. Now, he's spending more time at the beach in Huntington. And the more people he's running into, the more he's realizing, wow, there's a lot of like openly gay couples out there that live very prosperous lives together that aren't just, quote, roommates. There's even community centers for like LGBTQIA. You know, there's churches opening their doors to gay people. I mean, times are changing. So this gives him the courage. And he walks into the Air Force one day, shoulders tall, chin up and says, I'm gay. And it did not end well. They discharged him. And it was a general discharge, meaning not an honorable discharge. So an honorable discharge is, you know, both of you guys have decided to part ways. But it's, you did nothing wrong. You're just moving on with your life. It's time to chase other things. But his was a general discharge, which means if he applies anywhere, they're going to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Why wasn't it an honorable discharge? And they said because of, quote, medical reasons. Have you heard? I got the homosexuality bug while I was traveling. Oh, yeah, it's been going around. Like, what do you mean medical reasons? That doesn't even make sense. It boggles my mind. So because he was generally discharged, his employers were not trying to hire him. Nobody was. So he had to try to appeal it with an attorney and they refused. They refused to switch it over to an honorable discharge, even though they knew why. He's like, I can't get a job. When I was in high school, I had this ritual every day after coming home from school. I would grab a salty snack, sit down, watch my favorite mystery drama on TV. And recently, I discovered the adult version of that, which at the end of the workday, I grab salt and vinegar chips, snuggle up on the couch, and I play June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden objects mystery game that makes me feel like I'm living inside of a mystery TV show that is very immersive. You play as Detective June Parker, and you just found out that your sister and husband were murdered. This is a fictional story. So you fly from London to New York to investigate, but the clues are just not adding up. So you get to go through these series of scenes from the mansion living room to a lavish garden to a 1920s style New York cafe. In each room, you have to find hidden objects that help you solve the mystery of your sister's death. And in the meantime, a whole lot of unexpected, just scandalous twists are going to happen. There's family secrets, danger, there's romance. I love traveling all over the world with June. Currently, I'm exploring Paris in the 1920s because the game is set in the 1920s it just has the most aesthetic game design ever and it's so cozy whenever i need a break from the suspense i can pause the story and head over to my private island yeah they give you a private island and you get to customize it however you want for you i love cottage core mixed with that old money vibe with a huge mansion and a luxurious garden and even like this train rail june's journey is the best way to unwind at the end of a long day or just to take a break in the middle of the day when i feel overwhelmed i can escape all of my problems and turn into detective june discover your inner detective when you download june's journey for free today on ios and android I love meal deliveries. In fact, I love everything about having my meals delivered straight to my doorstep, except the delivery fees. That's why I signed up for the Dash Pass, an exclusive membership from DoorDash that lets you make an unlimited amount of fee-free orders for eligible orders. Whether it's food from your favorite restaurants, groceries from across town, or anything in between, the Dash Pass can get you $0 deliveries and lower service fees on eligible orders. That means you can easily save money at your favorite restaurants and groceries stores the dash pass practically pays for itself in two orders on average the math is mathing plus dash pass gives you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items and all of this for only $9.99 a month open the door to zero dollar delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else sign up for dash pass today only on doordash and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member subject to change terms apply so now he realizes Not only am I going to not be a senator anytime soon because of that, I probably can't even just get a job. 
He starts losing weight rapidly. All that he was consuming really were drugs and beer. He sounded almost suicidal, but a lot of people were ignoring him because they thought that he was just being dramatic to get attention. He even invited his good old high school buddy out for drinks. His name is Paul. So they would go on these Republican meetings together in high school. They shared their dreams of being the next conservative leader of the United States. But now Paul was married and the couple decides, well, let's catch up with Randy at the local bar. Randy said he found a nice place to go to. So they go, they have some beers. And the whole time, Paul can't help but notice. The bar's a little different from what he's used to. I mean, he can't really put his finger on it. Something's there, though. But I think he was shocked to his core. He's choking on his drink. Anytime Randy mentioned anything political. Because Paul remembered Randy as being one of the few people that were more conservative than him growing up. And now he hates the Vietnam War and he hates conservatives. Can you believe it? So he's like, can barely contain his drink in his stomach. And then Randy's like, and by the way, I'm gay. And this is a gay bar. So drink that beer, bitch. (laughs) And Paul is so shook. He was so shook. He couldn't even respond. He literally finished his drink in numb confusion. If Paul was shocked by this, I wonder how he would feel if he knew that it was around this time Randy had raped a 13-year-old kid. Now, I'm going to put a disclaimer here. I don't know why. There's always like that one or two people out there that's like, oh my gosh, gay people are scary because I read about one gay serial killer. Hey, look up how many serial killers were straight. Vast majority of them. Are we all scared of men? That's a very bad question to ask because the answer is yes. (laughs) It's supposed to be a no. Okay, there's a lot of straight people out there that are also killers. Like, we can't just be scared of an entire group of people just because one of them happened to be a serial killer. Are we making sense? Use critical thinking skills, and I will leave you at that. So Joey Fancher was 13 years old, and uh, he was was a regular 13-year-old kid. He hated school, like any kid. Hated it. His parents were always fighting all the time. He just wanted to be out of the house. He wanted to run away on his bike. The one thing that never let him down was his bike. So one day in March, he decides, you know what? I don't have to put up with this. He tells himself, today's the day. I need to run away. There's no avoiding it. Do I have a plan? No. Do I have anywhere to go? No. I mean, I'm 13. I don't have a 401k, but I just need to run away. So he's riding his bike near Huntington Pier, and he spots Randy smoking a cigarette. And he says, sir, could I have one of those? Randy says, you look 12. Uh, Sure, what's a kid like you doing here? Aren't you supposed to be in uh, school or something? Well, if you'd like to know, I'm on the run. What? Why? Because my life sucks. My mom's divorcing my stepdad. They argue all the time. And my teacher's at school, well, they're always grinding my gears. Well, kiddo, do you need a place to stay? Why, yes. Yes, of course I do. Well, have you had sex with a woman before? What? Sex with a woman before. I mean, Joey was excited. This kid's 13. So this is his lucky day. Not only is this stranger giving him a cigarette, but giving him a place to stay, but he also knew women? Like, this is what? The stranger says, do you want to lose your virginity? Yes. Yes, I would. Okay, well, hop up in my bike. Just leave your bike here. We'll get on my motorcycle and I'll take you back to my place. Joey couldn't wait any longer. He hopped on to the back of Randy's bike. They start heading down Long Beach and he starts seeing more women in bikinis on the beach. And he's thinking, oh my God, it's my lucky day. I've never been on this side of the beach before. I mean, there's so many pretty people out here. Is this where you live? I get to stay here? Wow. Well, kid, have you ever smoked weed before? Sure, yeah, who hasn't? It seems like he was, you know, trying to act tougher for Randy, just to act a little bit cooler. And so Randy lights him up a joint, passes it to him, and he starts slowly feeling very sleepy, a little bit hungry, and very nauseous. By the way, this is back in Randy's apartment now. And he says, hey, uh, Randy, um, I'm not feeling too hot. Oh, well, kid, I got something for you. Take these. These are pills. They're going to make you feel better. Sure, I guess. And he takes a couple. I don't think they're working. I don't feel any better. Well, why don't you take four more? And he passed him four more little red pills. And almost instantly, Joey felt exhausted, like he could black out right now. And Randy starts taking out this collection of photos, pictures, black and white photos of men having sex with one another. 
And Joey's like in this haze, but he could easily tell that one of these guys was Randy. So he tries to stand up. He's like, something's not right. I got to get out of here. The vibes are all off. But as he tries to get up and leave, he falls forward straight onto his face. Randy says, have you ever had sex with a dude? Joey couldn't even respond. Like he was that out of it. His legs were wobbly. He was shaking. It felt like someone had slapped him so hard in the face that he was in shock. He gets up. And he tries to move again, but it wasn't working. So Randy unzips his pants and starts touching himself, watching Joey struggle. And he demands, take off your clothes. I mean, he can't. He can barely walk. What do you mean, take off my clothes? So he couldn't move. The next thing that Joey remembered was Randy sticking his penis into his mouth and ejaculating. Once he was done, Randy tells Joey, if you move, I'll kill you. And he goes into the bathroom to clean himself off. So Joey, he's waiting outside. I mean, he's passing out, coming back. He didn't want to follow these instructions. He wanted to go home, but he was being threatened. Take off your clothes or I'm going to take them off for you. Like, it was bad. So Randy sodomizes Joey when he gets out of the bathroom. And then he goes back into the bathroom. So he keeps making these trips back and forth. And in between, he's just hurting Joey. Joey's so out of it, but he's conscious. He's in pain. He's distraught. He's traumatized. And when he comes back the third time, I mean... It seems like Randy's angry all of a sudden, and he assaulted Joey again. He sodomized him again, but this time it was different. This time, Randy was slapping him around, beating him aggressively while assaulting him. So Randy goes to the bathroom another time. Joey's sobbing and throwing up at this point, and Randy just casually tells him, well, I'm going to work, and slams the door shut. So the apartment is empty and Joey is alone. He's panicked. I need to get out of here. But everything was painful. Just moving was painful. Someone's knocking on the door. So he kind of scoots over as quickly as possible and he opens it and it's two young boys about his age. And they say, do you know where Randy is? What? No. And he shuts the door. So painfully, he puts on the rest of his clothes, leaves the apartment, and he was, you know, half walking, half falling down the stairs. Once he gets outside, all he can do is cry. So a passerby sees him, calls an ambulance for him, and at the hospital, they had to pump his stomach. The doctor said that if he had taken two more of those pills, he would have died. What did he take? It was like Valium. And when the hospital calls Joey's parents, they were upset. They came over, they rushed over, and they said, Joey, where the hell are your shoes? We just bought those for you. Do you know how expensive those shoes are? We to- This is why we can't get you nice things. After he's discharged, his parents go to the hospital. Honestly, they were just mad because his shoes and his bike were missing. So the police kept asking Joey, well, what happened? Um, nothing. Uh, this guy just asked me over to give me some pills and I took it and then I, I left. That's it? That's it. Joey was too embarrassed to tell the truth. I mean, he was terrified. Look at his parents' reactions to not even having his shoes. Like, you think that they're going to accept that or be supportive? No, they're going to re-traumatize him. The police filed a report for them, but what more can they do? He voluntarily went there. He took the pills. That was about it. It's not going to be top priority for them. So Joey goes home with his parents, and he's beat by his stepdad with a board with nails embedded in it. And the stepdad was mad. Not only did you try to run away, not only did you get rid of your shoes and your bike, but do you know how embarrassing that was that you got picked up by, insert homophobic slur, and you took drugs with him? Now the police know that our son is hanging out with, insert homophobic slur. You have no respect for school, you have no respect for property, no respect for your elders. Meanwhile, Joey's rectum was bleeding and torn that he never got medical care for. He was in pain physically for weeks and he'd probably be in pain mentally for years to come. Because even when the author interviewed him and talked to him about his experience, like it was bad. He was holding back tears. He could barely talk about it. Meanwhile, Randy moves on. He moves on from being a bartender to becoming a forklift driver for Arrowhead Water in Huntington Beach. Yeah, the water company. Now, when you enter into Arrowhead Water, like when you get a job there, you got to take a standard IQ test. And it showed that he had an IQ of 129. So this guy's pretty smart. Well, I don't know if you can gauge intelligence by IQ, but you get it, right? I mean, it seems like he's pretty smart. Mm-hmm. So this was not a fulfilling job for him, being a forklift driver. He wanted something more. So he starts, you know, taking courses in education and programming, and that's where he meets Jeff Graves, who's four years younger than him, who's also trying to become a teacher, who's also gay. 
So he's like, this is perfect. This is the guy that I'm into. Let's date. Now, Jeff happened to be a bit more experimental than Randy had been. He's very much into threesomes. He loves the high of, you know, having sex while being high on drugs simultaneously. And the two of them, they start dating openly. This is like his first official boyfriend that he's telling people, hey, this is my boyfriend. Now, even though Randy was only four years older, from the outside, it seemed like Jeff was a teenager. He just seemed so immature. He seemed physically, mentally, emotionally like a very young person. Somehow it worked. Randy was the type of guy that would never tell you what he's doing or where he's going. He seemed super uptight, strict with himself. Everything had to be done precisely and correctly. Meanwhile, Jeff was the opposite. He was fun. He was like a kid at heart. So they start going out together, meeting all these young people that were a lot more open with their sexuality. And that's when Randy and Jeff decide we're going to have an open relationship. So they would have sex with other people. They weren't going to get jealous. They would spend a lot of their times just taking long walks on the beach. And it seemed that Jeff seemed completely clueless to who Randy really was. Because when they were happy, things were amazing. And then out of nowhere, things would implode. They would get violent, aggressive, screaming matches. Psychologists would later say that these two were co they would boost up each other's egos, nurture each other, support each other, all just to tear it down in this vicious cycle, and it would be on repeat. It also didn't help that Jeff was super into drugs, especially before sex. It's almost like he needed drugs to have sex, which honestly can't be great for Randy's self-esteem. Everything just seemed to be spiraling out of control. It was so volatile. And then one day Jeff comes home and there's police there. What's this about? Well, we received a complaint from the parents of a 13-year-old boy that some guy named Randy gave their kids drugs and beat him up. He had to have his stomach pumped. What? A guy named Randy? That That's my roommate. That's weird. That doesn't sound like something my, um, my roommate would do. But if you guys want to, you can totally look around. I mean, you're more than welcome. Besides, we always have kids hanging out here. He would never give them drugs. He would never beat them. That's absurd. So the police take a look around and there was really nothing to make an arrest about. Yes, there was homosexual literature and porn and drugs and they wrote that on the report. Yeah, they wrote that on the report, but they did not arrest anyone. But this just put another strain in Jeff and Randy's relationship. They developed a bit of a pattern. If they got into an explosive fight, Jeff would leave to go to the bar looking for a one night stand, which honestly was one of the biggest reasons that they were fighting to begin with. Randy decided he doesn't like an open relationship. He gets jealous. He's always angry. Some said that Randy had a super strange temper to begin with. He would just wig out every so often and he would get so upset about the smallest things. It seemed like he was seething underneath, but he would never show it, never express it. And it was just waiting to explode. So, for example, there's a guy named Danny. Danny would let Randy stay with him sometimes when Randy was having relationship problems. So Randy's staying rent free at Danny's house. I mean, you would think that you'd be so grateful. You'd be like, yes, thank you so much. I'm so sorry. Like, I feel like a burden. But one night, Danny comes home, thought that Randy was gone, thought that Randy was out of the house. Maybe he was out partying because it was so quiet. Mm -hmm. He didn't hear him, didn't see his keys, thought nobody was in his house because this is Danny's house. So Danny goes drinking with his friends, they come back home and they're just, I mean, they're progressively getting louder. They're banging pots and pans around because they're trying to make some dinner and it's not working because they're drunk. They had no idea that Randy had been home this entire time. Okay. Until the next morning, they wake up and head to the beach. When they get back, their entire house is littered with just everything. Randy had picked up anything and everything around him. I'm talking coffee grounds, buckets of trash, every container on the kitchen that was filled with sugar, flour, coffee, salt. He grabbed it and poured it all over the floors and the stove and the counters. But then oddly, he left a note on the refrigerator that said, and I quote, sorry for losing my temper. What in the world? So when things were going well, Randy would have threesomes with Jeff and then there would be a thorn in their relationship and then these innocent sexual escapades were no longer innocent. It was their sore spot. Both men were into Marines. They loved them, like the U.S. Marines. And uh, Randy would get so jealous anytime Jeff was talking to a Marine without them. And in that area, there was one by the name of Edward Daniel Moore. He was 20 years old. He actually hated being in the Marines. He was going AWOL, which means absent without official leave. And he, he just didn't even want to join the Marines to begin with. But his parents were alcoholics. His mom had died of a stroke. And he had been sent to foster care where both him and his brother had been molested. And because of this trauma, it's alleged that he told his superiors that he and his brother explored more together. 
sexually. So all of this was just amounting to a lot of emotional and physical trauma. He had vision problems. He he would have to squint a lot to try and look at things clearly. He was really struggling. He would even donate blood to get some cash for blankets and he would sleep out on the beach in California. So the day after Christmas, the police are called out. There's a body on the side of the road. They have no shoes on, only one sock. The other sock, the police found, had been jammed into his rectum. He was wearing a jacket with a Confederate flag sewn into it. It was clear that his face was badly beat with maybe something like a pipe. And then afterwards, he was strangled to death. I mean, the injuries on this guy were extensive. He had scratches on his testicles, bite marks on his penis. There were no drugs or alcohol in his system. So it meant that he was present for everything that happened to him. So like I said, after a big fight, Jeff would go out and find a Marine at the bar. Meanwhile, Randy would get into his car, drive around to get rid of his anger. Sometimes he drove all night long. Or sometimes he ran into a Marine that he thought might need some help along the way. A Marine that was potentially hitchhiking on the highway. Other than fighting with Jeff, Randy's life was going well. He campaigned for more Democratic governors. He went to a high school reunion where he came out as being a Democrat, which is shocking. Oh, and gay. Like, people were more shocked that he was a Democrat than that he was gay. (laughs) So he's living his best life. Meanwhile, the police are confused because they just found this Marine on the side of the highway. Why is he dead? Why is his sock shoved up his, you know, rectum? This is not a normal crime. This doesn't seem like a crime of, hey, I don't like you, so I'm going to kill you. Like a crime of passion. It seemed random. It seemed it gave off serial killer vibes. Something weird was going on. And they really didn't have any other leads. Then another body is found. An unidentifiable man was found naked near the highway of the L.A. area. There was a brown sock jammed into his rectum and he had also been strangled to death. So what the hell is going on here? What's up with the socks? The police are freaking out. Then another body is found. An 18-year-old with no socks. The socks are in the rectum again. And it's clear to the police that he had been sodomized. But this one was a little bit different. His penis and testicles were sliced off, castrated, before he died there wasn't really a cause of death he was strangled yes but he also did lose a lot of blood so we don't know exactly which caused you know the actual death i mean this doesn't make sense he's 18 years old why are these horrible things happening the police are starting to freak out at this point they're so young who's sick enough to you know mutilate these young boys then they find another another john doe well they don't really find him They found his body parts, rather. So police of all different jurisdictions of Southern California had been getting some weird calls that day. A supermarket from Long Beach said, hey, uh, is this the police? I just went outside and there was a brown paper sack that was left out in the back. So I looked inside and there's arms and a torso. Oh, Oh my my God, it's a torso. Then they get another call from the side of the road in San Pedro. There's a right leg here. No, it's not attached to a person. There's just a leg. Help. Then another call. Hey, uh, guys, I'm over here at a bar near Sunset Beach. And uh, listen, you're not going to believe me, but there's a left leg just here, like just a leg. It took two weeks before the police found all the body parts and they were so badly decomposed. There was no telling what happened to this person. It was clear that his penis had been cut off. But the most alarming part was that the victim's eyelids were removed. So an officer was like, well, why would why would someone do that? Well, Probably to make sure the victim doesn't try to close their eyes during the torture. The killer wants him to see what's happening to him. The killer wants him to see his own penis being mutilated and chopped off. An odd detail was that uh, the police said the body parts were refrigerated before they were disposed of. The hands to this day were never found. So it's clear whoever's doing this is not going to stop anytime soon. They're going to keep going. Then more bodies were found. Some of them had um, chewing marks on the private areas. It looked like the killer was just gnawing on the the penis while the victims were alive. Literally like munching on them very painfully. And it just didn't make sense. I mean, a lot of these guys were Marines. A lot of these guys were bigger dudes. How is somebody carrying a 200-pound body to the side of the highway? Obviously, it didn't happen there. This is not the crime scene. It happened somewhere else. And then they brought them here. So how can you do that? At least two people have to be involved. That's what the police are thinking. Then it starts escalating more. They find another guy, but this time his head and face were completely shaven. They had cut off both of his hands and they used the plastic sandwich bags to cover each, quote, bloody stump where his hands were supposed to be. Like, just put the plastic bags on there. 
block the blood? Yeah, and the hands were still never found. And inside the man's penis, they found a pencil had been jammed inside before he was murdered. There was another man found with his genitals missing and a branch of a tree had been forced six inches into his rectum. There was a U.S. Marine, Roger E. Dickerson, who was only 18 years old, and he was found on a road near a golf course in Laguna Beach, and his penis and left nipple had been chewed almost completely off. He had been sodomized and strangled to death. These are just happening back to back? Just back to back, really. I mean, he was operating for close to 12 years, but he would have these like long lulls of killing where he would stop killing, and then he would go back to just rapid fire hunting for people to kill. If I offered you two different pairs of jeans and I told you that you can only wear one of them, you could probably decide in two seconds. But what if I offered you a thousand pairs of jeans and they're all slightly different and I said you can only wear one of these for the next 12 months straight. This will be your go-to pant of choice. What are you going to do? How do you even start to choose? That's exactly what I felt like when I was combing through thousands of listings whenever we were moving to a new apartment. I would spend hours a day stressing about, is this apartment in a good neighborhood? Is it going to accommodate my dogs? Does it fit my budget? I didn't know any of these. And the worst part is most of the listings didn't even tick all of my boxes. That is why Apartments.com is your best place to look for your new home. Apartments.com lets you filter your search based on whether you have pets, if you want a balcony, built-in AC, whatever it is that you're looking for. The website remembers your search so that you don't have to keep filtering every time you come back. And Apartments.com has more rental listings than anywhere else, meaning no matter how specific your needs are, they got you. And your instant alerts mean that you can spend less time online looking for the perfect place and more time doing you. So if you're looking for a new place to call home, head over to Apartments.com, Apartments.com, the place to find a place. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. There was one instance where Randy almost got caught. So he had kidnapped two guys from a parking lot. Well, he hadn't kidnapped them. He just kind of enticed them and was like, hey, I've got drugs in my car. Get in. Hop in. Right. But one of them. They ended up just waking up back in their bedroom. They had no idea how they got back there. They just remember feeling blacked out, feeling out of body in the car with this stranger that they just met, that they took drugs from. And then the next morning he was in his room. But everyone's like, well, where's Keith? The other guy that he was with. Where's Keith? You were out with Keith last night. Keith's parents said he's not home. Keith's not at school. What's going on? Where's Keith? Right? They couldn't find him anywhere. So he starts helping and he's like, listen, it was a Mustang near Long Beach. They start just driving down the roads of Long Beach and they find a Mustang parked outside an apartment building. And he's like, that's the one. That's the one. That's the one that we were in that night when Keith went missing. So they give the license plate to the police and the police find out that it belongs to a Randy Kraft. They knock on his door and they're like, hey, you got to come down to the station. Do you know this guy named Keith? And he says, I don't really know. I mean, oh, you know what? I do remember them. So I gave them some alcohol and then uh, we went for a drive. I dropped off Kent, which is the guy that is alive. That's not missing. I dropped off Kent at the police or at the the parking lot where I picked them up. And then Keith wanted to be dropped off at a random side of the road. I was like, this guy's weird. So I drive him and then my car gets stuck in a ditch. So I say, hey, Keith, why don't you stay in my car while I walk to the nearest gas station to see if they can call me a tow truck? But can you just watch my car? I don't want someone stealing it. When I get back to the car, guess what? Keith, Keith is gone. What a bizarre story. Yeah. What's crazy is the police are like, makes sense. Have a good one. And they let him go. Now, there were a group of police officers that felt like this guy is so shady, like shady beyond belief. So they decide that they're going to try to file for a murder, a murder charge, a warrant for his arrest. But they were told no way. No body, no murder, no charge, no arrest. So there's a lot of history behind this and a lot of politics. But it's said that the Long Beach Police Department were notorious for never arresting anyone unless they knew it was a slam dunk case. That's how they like to roll. That's how they operated, which is horrendous. It's horrible, right? So they didn't arrest him. Months went by. Randy's a free man. No charges. And he's furious. How dare they think I'm killing people? That's insane. 
Jeff believed him, but their relationship was coming to a close. Jeff eventually moved out and Randy was alone and he was depressed. He's got nobody. He's approaching his 30s. He's not close to his family. They're always fighting with each other. One of his nieces was trying to cure him of his homosexuality by praying for him. So, you know, but his luck turned around when he went to a party and met another Jeff. Yeah, another Jeff. This is Jeff 2.0. Jeff 2.0 was 19 years old. Randy's 29. So according to Randy, Jeff lied and said that he was 26, which honestly, I don't buy it because I've never met a 19 year old that looked 26. And Randy's like, I believe you. But within six months of meeting each other, Jeff moves in and he finds out this kid's 19. They go to a party together and all these high school girls are coming up to him and saying hi. And he's like, how do you know all these high school kids? You're 26. And he says, oh, yeah, that's because I just graduated with them. You just graduated from high school. But he freaked out and they decided that they're going to stay together. They would go on these romantic dates. They would pick up other gay men for threesomes. I mean, it was clear that Randy would overthink a lot in this relationship. So he would say things like, hey, if I have to choose between you and my dog, you know, I don't want it to come to that. And Jeff is so confused. Like, I, I love your dog. I don't understand. This is coming out of nowhere. Like, what are you thinking by yourself in your head right now? So out of nowhere. But overall, Randy was happy in his relationship. And that might explain why there was a lull in the killings during this time. Even on New Year's Eve, he decided, you know what? I'm going to go spend it with family. I don't like my family, but I like my nieces and nephews. Minus the one that's praying for me. But the rest of them, they're fine. They're cool. They're cool kids. He's good with kids. That's what he says. So after all the fun of the New Year's Eve, he falls asleep on the couch of his sister's house. And when the whole family wakes up, they still see him on the couch wearing the same clothes as the night before. He hadn't changed into his PJs. Now, his family finally being some good family members and loving him for who he was said, I always had a good time with Randy. He didn't seem any different that day than he always was. But what they didn't know is that Randy had snuck out that night and murdered a man. And more men were showing up on the sides of highways. And one of them was wrapped around a tree like a scarecrow. That's how the police describe him. He had leaves and soil down his throat all the way down to the tissues of the lungs itself, which means he had been gagged to death on dirt. There were cigarette burns all over the victims, specifically around their nipples. There were burn marks on his scrotum, eyelids, cheeks, nose, upper lip, the tip of his penis. And... One of the victims, his eyelids were so badly burnt that the police couldn't even tell what color his eyes used to be. He had been sodomized. And you know, when you get like a cocktail, you get those stirs, like those sticks that you stir your cocktail with. Mm -hmm. The full length of that had been inserted into his penis. Jeez. The, then the killer chopped off his penis and balls and forced them into the victim's anus. There were also a lot of other things like leaves that were stuffed in there. It's believed that... um that Randy would assault his victims with things like glass liquor bottles. I mean, it's unclear exactly how much the victims had to live through it, but the autopsies kind of speculate that it was for a lot of it. You're like, well, why didn't they find the killer? I mean, what's going on with the police? Is it because the victims are gay? Well, let me explain. I think that has something to do with it, right? But it's also because the freeway killer is a nickname that's shared between three separate serial killers. We've got Randy Croft, Patrick Kearney, and William Bonin. They do not have any connection with each other other than the fact that they share the same nickname. Yes, two of them are going to become best buds in prison later. But as of right now, outside of prison, they don't know each other. They have no idea who each other are. That's about it. But but because of this, the police were really confused, honestly. So Randy and Patrick would pick up and dispose of their victims in the same area. Both of the killers were gay men and their victim profile was super similar, too. So they murdered young men, typically teenagers or early 20s. Patrick's victims were as young as like 13 years old. But the main difference was that Patrick shot his victims and then he would assault their corpses. He did something that he called, quote, play with his food, where he would cut open the victim's stomach and experiment with their bodies or play with their food i guess and this was all done post-mortem so patrick would say oh i didn't want to do it while they were alive because i didn't really want them to be in that much pain which honestly i'm not giving him like a high five for that that's not that's nothing but it's a little bit different when you talk about a serial killer like if you want to torture someone it's very different from a serial killer who waits to do everything after post-mortem he's even assaulting the corpses so he doesn't assault them before he kills them. A lot of the times Patrick's victims would actually look like the bullies he had in high school or during his childhood. And when he was done, he would dump their bodies in trash bags near dumpsters, deserts or on the highways. Randy, on the other hand, he would strangle them and he would in 
intensely torture them. But to the police, they didn't really think it was two separate serial killers because of how similar the victim profile was. The police believed for the longest time that it was two killers working together and they just randomly decided, hey, one day we're going to shoot them, one day we're going to strangle them. Let's just like take turns. Like the Hillside Strangler Cousins in L.A. So the investigation starts ramping up and Patrick Kearney, the other freeway killer, turns himself in. No way. And they're like, yes, we got it. And the police started asking him some serious questions and he had some creepy ass answers. He said that ever since he was eight years old, he had a feeling that he was going to do these things growing up. He was going to kill people. Why did you give them so much Valium? Why did you chop off all their penises? And that's when they realized Patrick was staring at them. He was trying to figure out what the hell they're talking about. He had a blank stare. He was confused. That means... There's someone else out on the freeways. Whoever it was was getting more and more twisted, more ambitious. He started experimenting more on his victims. He would have these, quote, surgeries where the killer would remove the scrotum and the testicles while the victim is still alive and leave just the penis on the body. So they're doing everything that they can to catch this guy, even talking to physics. And then another freeway killer strikes. The third one, William Bonin. His victims were very young. They were gay or straight men, and he liked to torture his victims. He loved to hear them scream. That's what he said. So his favorite method was to get hitchhikers, convince them to have sex with him, and then he would put on handcuffs. While they were handcuffed, he would sodomize them, gag them with their own t-shirts, slowly strangle them, and oftentimes he said that he laughed while he watched them struggle to death. So he gets arrested after two years of terrorizing California's freeways. He was actually caught in the act of sodomizing a 17-year-old in his car, in his van. And this guy's super evil. Like, he would randomly give people tips. He would say, if you ever want to kill somebody, you should make a plan. Find a place to dump the body before you pick the victim. Eventually, he was charged with 21 murders and executed on death row. But there was still one left. And the stakes were high. A lot of people were blaming the entire gay community for the, for the anger they felt at the killings. They were like, it's all of you. As if all the gays gathered together and planned it. So even with all this pressure, Randy's doing a lot in life. He's, you know, getting into computer programming. He found a job that he loved. He was making two times the average American salary at the time. He bought his first house. He was so happy with life. He also continued to kill rapidly and painfully. One of his victims was found and his head was literal mush. He started to sodomize his victims with more and more painful objects while they were still alive, like things like table legs. And that's not the only strange thing. One time, out of the blue, he told his friend, the ultimate orgasm is when you're dying. What? Meanwhile, he's not enjoying his relationship with Jeff, so they start going to couples therapy. I mean, are you kidding me? Like, imagine being a therapist and your patient is a serial killer. You're going to need therapy after that. The therapist noted that Randy seemed to have a lot of feelings of worthlessness and difficulty in concentrating. Randy also wrote once, there is a difference, apparently, a dichotomy between what we as people see ourselves to be and what we really are. Our answers to problems seem to be containment of the symptoms rather than eliminating or reducing the root cause of the problem. When will we stop trying to contain the status quo and instead forge an enduring commitment to future development and survival? Okay, he's like shaking his head and I'm like, yeah, it's like a whole lot of nothing, I feel like. (laughs) It just sounded really smart, but nothing was said. So one day, a little after 1 a.m., two highway patrol officers pull over a brown Toyota in Mission Viejo. And it looked like this was going to be their second drunk driver of the night. They were upset. The car was weaving like crazy. And when they pulled over, the driver gets out and rushes to the police car. Like, what's going on, guys? I mean, let's be real. That's a death wish for some people or a racist. But also, it shows to the police that typically the driver has something to hide. He doesn't want the police to go to his car. So usually it's an open container of alcohol, sometimes a beer can, So, of course, they're going to check this guy's car. And sure enough, yeah, there's a cooler in the back. It's full of open containers. They do a sobriety test on him. He said he had about three to four drinks, but his zipper was open. You know, it's like this guy seems really drunk. I mean, he's definitely on something. And as they arrest him, one of the other officers walks up to the dark passenger side of the car and realizes, my God, this guy's not alone. There's someone in the passenger seat and he's so drunk. Hello, wake up. You guys are getting pulled over. No response. So he starts banging and shouting at the guy in the passenger seat. Still no response. Hey, where's your friend from? Uh, I I don't know. I picked him up a few miles back. He's a hitchhiker. They try to open the passenger door, but it's locked. So they unlock the door 
and that's when they see it. A bunch of pill vials, also empty alcohol bottles, a giant five-inch knife on the driver's seat just sitting there. And when he goes to shake this guy awake, his arm is clammy, and the officer knew he was dead. There was a jacket on his lap that he ripped off and he saw that the man's zipper was down and someone had positioned his penis and testicles to be sticking out upright out of the pants. There were deep ligature marks around his wrist. His hands were tied with his own shoelaces. There were marks around his neck as well. And the police rushed to call the ambulance and while they waited with the driver, I mean, it was dead silent. They're with Randy, just waiting for the paramedics. They weren't asking him questions? Not yet. They probably freaked out too. Yeah. So now that the police have Randy Kraft in custody, they start going through and searching his car. In the back, they find a belt that matched the markings on the victim. They found alcohol, tranquilizers, various prescription drugs, stimulants. The passenger seat was heavily bloodstained, but the victim had no open wounds at all. So that means this is someone else's blood. The blood was confirmed to be human. There was a book in the car that was called The Essential Guide to Prescription Drugs, What We Need to Know for Safe Drug Use. And it just detailed accounts of what not to take with each other to avoid having adverse effects. Under the floor mat of the driver's side, there were 47 pictures, all young men, some naked, some not, some alive, and some were clearly dead. So the police were pretty, they were traumatized by their findings, but the worst was yet to come. When they open the trunk, they find a tablet like a wood-grained binder that had 61 neatly printed notations. They weren't able to really understand it at first, but eventually they found that it was 65 nicknames for 65 victims. And because of that, Randy was called the scorecard killer. It took six years after his arrest to piece together two-thirds of the puzzle. Of 61 entries, the police were able to tie 41 deaths to Randy, but 20 entries still remain a mystery. Randy had been active for over 12 years. He had uh, what the police suspected to be at least 67 victims. During the trial for Randy, which, by the way, was super expensive, I think the whole trial was going to cost anywhere between like five to ten million dollars for the state of California. During the trial, one of the autopsy specialists in OC, he testified he had um, he's professional. He gave every little injury, every detail of Randy's gruesome killings. He was being grilled by Randy's defense attorney. And two years after the trial, he put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger. No. And the police said doing what he did would have depressed anybody. Randy maintained his innocence. He said, I don't belong here in this prison. I didn't do anything wrong. Sure, I've met one or two of the victims, but that doesn't mean I killed them or even hurt them. He said it was heartbreaking that he had to stay in prison for Christmas and what the press were saying about him. His sister supported him every step of the way, which... <laughs> I find to be incredibly awkward and weird and bizarre because they did not support him when he came out as being gay, something that's completely normal. But when you go to prison for being a serial killer, they're like, well, we're with you, Randy. We're going to support you no matter what. You know, that's what family is through thick and thin. What? What are you saying? They would complain to the prisons. Randy's food is over salted. That's too salty for him. Why would you take away his tape recorder? He's got to listen to music. And you're making him dress like a hobo. That's what they said. Hobo. They would give a list of demands. He needs Kleenex, cotton balls, dandruff shampoo, earplugs, floss, nail clippers, soap dish for his soaps, and band-aids. Pronto. The other inmates were sick of his shit. They plotted to kill him. But the guards found out and put a stop to it. Randy's defense was that he was innocent. It was somebody else. I mean, he's the scapegoat. But in the end, he was convicted and sentenced to two life sentences. The judge asked, do you have any last words for the court? <clears throat> I just briefly would like to say that I have not murdered anyone, and I believe that a full review of the record will show that. That's all. And as he sat down, one of the dads of the victims stood up and yelled, Burn in hell, Kraft! But of course, there is a conspiracy surrounding this case. So some details of the case. Forensic evidence shows that there may have been a second accomplice because there were two sets of footprints when they found one of the other victims' bodies in the sand. There was semen found on the bodies that weren't Randy's. And Randy would have a hard time pushing 200-pound corpses by himself. Some of the bodies were found, and uh, the autopsy technicians would say, we suspect that, they, that these bodies were pushed out of moving cars at high speeds. Like, if you were to drive down the highway and throw something out the window, that's what we believed happened to these bodies. That would be incredibly hard for one person to do. What about the pictures? 
They weren't Polaroids. So someone somewhere processed these pictures of dead people posing provocatively and nobody reported it. Nobody remembered it. Randy himself didn't know how to process pictures. Does that mean he was working with someone who did privately? In prison, Randy sued the author of the book, this book, yeah, Angel of Darkness, for, quote, smearing his good name, for wrongfully portraying him as a sick, twisted man and scuttling his future prospects for an employment. He wanted $62 million in damages. It cost the author and Warner Bros. $50,000 in legal fees, but the case was dismissed. And in 2000, the author felt like he had cracked the conspiracy. So after spending more time investigating these crimes, he found out that there was a man named Bob Jackson. Bob Jackson allegedly admitted to murdering people with Randy. There was a notation next to the victims that he claimed to have murdered with Randy that said Twiggy. So maybe that's what Randy called Bob. Maybe that was his nickname. He also said that, um, this is the more shocking part, that the people on the list, the 60-something people, these were just the memorable kills. Randy didn't like to write everyone down. He just liked to write down the ones he had fun with. Bob believes that the total body count is closer to 100. Now, take everything with a grain of salt because the police interrogated Bob. No charges were filed, but he was admitted into a mental facility. Meanwhile, Randy would spend the rest of his days in prison playing games with his best buds, who were also serial killers. The Toolbox Killer, Lawrence Bittaker, the Sunset Strip Splayer, Douglas Clark, and the other freeway killer, William Bonin. And that's the story of Randy Clark, the freeway killer, the scorecard killer. He is still I believe he's still in prison because California uh, halted all executions. Let me know what are your thoughts on this. I mean, this guy was... I was hoping for something in his childhood, not because I wanted something bad to happen to him, but just maybe it gives us a little peace of mind. We know, oh, okay, maybe this is how we help our minds understand how we got to this point, how all of this takes place. But I just feel so confused. Let me know. What are your thoughts on this case? And I hope you guys enjoyed. And I will see you guys on Sunday for the mini-sode. Bye.